Well, tomorrow, shops, outdoor hospitality, hairdressers and all kinds of other things open, don't they? And I don't know whether that gives you a sort of little whoop inside. Anybody feeling that this morning, that, that bit of excitement? Or perhaps you're feeling, oh, no, I'm quite happy. I, I've, I'm quite happy staying at home. Or perhaps, actually, the reality is it's not going to make a lot of difference to you. But actually, beyond that, beyond tomorrow, there's a lot of talk going on in the media at the moment, isn't there, about how um, sort of big-scale events will get going about how things in stadiums and in theatres and in concert halls, and I think there's a government pilot scheme going on at the moment. Because there's something about the crowd, isn't there, that can grab our attention. There is something about being with big groups of people. And sometimes we might talk about certain individuals who can command the crowd. You've probably heard that phrase said, you know, they really commanded the stage. They commanded the crowd. Imagine saying that about the dining table. They really commanded the dining table. We wouldn't say it. Well, we might say it, but it wouldn't be in a very positive way if we did. When Jesus rose from the dead, this most pivotal event in human history, on Easter Day, Resurrection Day, it goes about almost unnoticed. If you were with us last week, we saw how Jesus appears. um, Well, he, he rises from the dead, and he just appears to the ones and the twos. First of all, the women here, then Mary Magdalene in John's Gospel. She encounters the risen Christ, but thinks he's the gardener to start with. And so today, we're in Luke's Gospel. And we're on Easter Day. It's a bit later on in the day. And we get this very earthy, everyday type of account of two men walking down a road who then find they've encountered the risen Christ. Now, Luke is the Gospel writer. He's always passionate about people. He's a very pastoral writer. And he's always concerned about the human condition and about our sin and our need of a savior. And this really comes out in the way he records this event here. So two followers of Jesus, Cleopas and somebody else, we don't know who, it doesn't really matter at this point, but there's two of them and they're walking. They're walking down what is probably a very dusty road out from Jerusalem down to this village called Emmaus. And it's about seven miles If you want to set off on a seven-mile walk after our service today, if you're in the room here, that would take you to the far side of Altrincham. Quite a trek, quite a trek. Take you a couple of hours, even if you're walking at quite a quick speed. It's long enough to have a really good conversation. And as they're walking, these two followers of Jesus, they're not part of the group of the 12, but they're, they're part of the sort of the circle of people around Jesus. They know some of the events that have taken place. They're starting to talk about what has happened. They're mulling, musing over the things that have happened. And as they talk, somebody joins them. Somebody walks alongside. We know it's Jesus. They don't at this point. And they start to have this conversation. But it says in verse 16, they are kept from recognizing him. It's interesting. They are kept from recognizing him. Now, there seems to be something about Jesus' resurrection body that means that people don't immediately recognize him. Perhaps there's something about the shift from the perishable to the imperishable that just means that there there are those moments. We see it in the garden with Mary Magdalene. We see it um, when Thomas, you know, he's the one who doubts Jesus and all these other events where, where people don't quite recognize him to start with. But here, they're walking and they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. But as they walk, they start to have this conversation. And as we've heard, it's a, it's a conversation this morning about the things that have happened. And they start to tell this stranger about the events of the past few days. 
They give their explanation of who they think Jesus was. A prophet, a potential redeemer of Israel, somebody to restore the nation. They talk about the events that have happened in his ministry, the sentencing, the heartbreak of crucifixion, and then these stories from the women of angels and resurrection. Now, we know who Jesus is. We've got the rest of the Bible to read. They didn't know at this point. They didn't know. They're thinking about who Jesus is. It's too small. It's too provincial. It's too local. And it says they were amazed by the news that the women had brought them. Now, you can be amazed in many different ways, can't you? If somebody tells you some really great news, you might say, oh, that is amazing. You believe the news, and you're genuinely happy for the person who's told you the amazing news. But sometimes, I don't know if you've ever found this experience, where somebody tells you something, and you think, oh, that's amazing, but you're not quite sure whether to believe it or not. And it might be accompanied by a raise of one eyebrow, if you're fortunate enough to be able to do that. I can't do that, but if you can raise one eyebrow, you might do that. And there's a kind of, really? Really? Did that happen? That kind of bemused amazement. Now, I wonder whether that's what's going on in here, simply by the fact that in verse 25, Jesus says how foolish you are. You've not understood. You've not grasped what has happened. And so for the next couple of hours, they are treated to what I think must be one of the highlights of the New Testament. Jesus explaining the Old Testament. You know, there are many things in the Scriptures that perhaps sound more exciting than these verses. But if I could be a fly on the wall in many of the things that happen in the New Testament, this would be one of them. To hear the Son of God explaining through the prophets, through the the Moses, through Exodus, through all these events in the Old Testament, and how it all points to the suffering servant of Israel, the suffering Messiah, who is now risen and is walking with him. Just imagine having Jesus unpack the Old Testament to you. What an experience that would be. But what a reminder for us today, you know, if you're joining in with us on the tour, what a reminder that the Old Testament points us to Jesus. That the Exodus, that Moses, that all the prophets, they point us to Jesus, the one who is to come. And how that we see him revealed as the history of God's people is unpacked. As Cleopas and his companion, as they get to Emmaus, as this walk, this quite long walk, comes to an end. Jesus indicates that he's going to go on further. Now Jesus is not tricking them. If they hadn't invited him in, he would have walked and they would have, they would have missed the opportunity to have him revealed to them. But it's only in inviting Jesus in for a meal are they then fully able to see who he is. It's only when they are proactive and actually invite Jesus into this home that they get to see who Jesus is. The risen Christ has walked with them, talked with them. Their hearts have been burning as that has happened, but they've yet to fully see. They need to take action. Faith always involves action on our part. Jesus doesn't barge his way into our lives. He doesn't force people to follow him. But rather, he longs for us to respond. He invites us graciously, out of his love, out of his mercy, to respond to him. He knocks on our door of our heart. He longs to be welcomed in to our lives. Now, Sarah's already mentioned this this morning, but whether it's for that first time, just to make that final invitation into your heart for the risen Christ to become Lord. Can I encourage you to do that this morning? Or whether it's you're you're further down that road, you've already done that, but actually you've stopped welcoming Jesus in and actually your heart's become a little bit hard to him. If that's you this morning, can I encourage you again, open your heart 
to Jesus who longs to come in and have fellowship with you. Now, Christian discipleship is always fully rooted in that relationship with Jesus, in the knowing of God through Christ, in knowing him personally in our lives. But in knowing Jesus, we're called to serve the priorities of Jesus. We're called to be gospel people who go out there and do the things that we saw Jesus doing and doing greater things, Jesus says, than he did. But it's easy to let opportunities to serve Jesus walk past us. It's easy to to lose those times when actually we could be those people Jesus wants us to be. There's a parable in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. You you may know this parable, but I'm just going to read, if you can see it on, on the screen there, verse 35. For it says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. And then later on in the parable, Jesus, well, it's not Jesus in it, it's talking about God here. It says in verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you what you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. To respond to the risen Christ, to respond to the risen Christ is to serve one another, to love one another, to be bringers of gospel hope, to serve the poor, to serve the needy, to serve the broken. When we invite Jesus in, that's what it means. It means to become all the things that Jesus has called us to be. Now, on the Emmaus Road, Cleopas and whoever he's with, they invite Jesus in. Jesus comes and eats with them. And was so often in the case with the Jewish meal, bread is broken and Jesus gives thanks. This was the standard way that a meal would happen. Although there is something unusual here. Jesus is the host at this meal, whereas actually normally a guest wouldn't be the host. It's an interesting twist on normality. Now, many writers have asked the question, actually, is this about communion here? You you may have been wondering that as we read the passage earlier. Is Jesus being revealed here through bread in in the sense of where we share communion and bread and wine? Just think for a moment, though. These two, Cleopas and the other person with him, they weren't part of the 12. They hadn't been at the Last Supper. They may have heard about it, but they hadn't been there. And there is no wine that is offered here either. It seems unlikely that that is actually what Luke is talking about. But rather, it is just saying that Jesus is present at the table, present at the place of welcome, and Jesus is the host. So why are their eyes open to who he is at this point? Leon Morris says this, perhaps they now see the nail marks in Jesus' hand for the first time. Or perhaps it was just God's chosen time. Perhaps as Jesus lifted the bread and broke it, they see that the Trinity, the incarnate Son of God, is forever marked with the scars of our redemption. Or perhaps it's just that this, that the place of welcome, the place of hospitality, that God chooses to remove the scales from their eyes. So at the table, around a meal, the risen Christ is revealed. It's Easter Day still. Why does Jesus choose to do this? Why does he choose to do this? Why is he revealing himself to two relatively unknown disciples? Why isn't he doing this in a big way somewhere else? In Rome, there was a great big hippodrome. In Jerusalem, there was a smallish hippodrome. In Caesarea, there was a hippodrome that King Herod the Great had built for his own ends, and it seated 13,000 people. Why didn't Jesus hire one of these huge events places and say, actually, I will reveal myself to the tens of thousands of people all at one go. 
Why did he bother with these two unknown people on the Emmaus Road? Why do the gospel writers make such a big deal about these small-scale events? You know, a lady in a garden, people on the, the disciples having a meal of fish on the beach, this event here on the Emmaus Road, Thomas seeing um, the nail marks in Jesus' hand. Why? What is Jesus teaching us through this? Well, churches, Christians, preachers, we, we can easily get distracted by the kind of bigger is better philosophy. That actually numbers are all that matter, that it's the hits on YouTube, it's the number of people that go to an event, it's the scale that is important, and those are the measurements of kingdom growth. We can easily get taken up with the platform, whereas here Jesus says that the dining table is actually a place where God can do just as much work. It's in those places as well, and let's not put those places down. Now, it is true that as the story of the early church progresses, that God uses both. Pentecost is a thousands of people event. But here, it's in the intimate setting of the home. As the church moves forward, as our church moves forward, I really believe that we need to recapture something of this Emmaus event in our own mission, in how we view things, that we don't become too taken up with the platform that we forget the home, that we don't get so taken up with just simply inviting people to these big named events, that we forget that our small efforts to share Jesus are often the really important ones. It can be so easy to sort of subcontract out evangelism and to sort of think, well, I know Jesus has called me, I know he's called me to share, but I'll actually leave it to those big-named evangelists. All I'll do is send somebody a link and hope they join in with whatever it is online. Or I'll hopefully invite them to something when those kind of things happen. Or I'll leave it to the professionals to do that. But here is Jesus, the Son of God himself, showing us a very different model. Showing us that actually sharing can be done over a simple meal in a simple home. Changing the world doesn't always start with the big. It can start with the small. Jesus chooses at this point the table over the hippodrome, the home over the platform. So what about us today? What is he calling us to do? Just two things to leave us with, really. Sometimes the most simple ways of sharing Jesus can be the most effective. That might mean dusting the snow off your deck chairs this afternoon, inviting somebody round, having a chat in the garden, doing whatever it is we can now do as the restrictions start to ease. But don't ever think that those simple ways of just sharing life with people can't be used by God to give amazing opportunities for the gospel. Would we do that? Would we take this Emmaus Road experience and say, actually, I can do those kind of things. I can do the kind of things that Jesus models here. Secondly, Jesus, the risen, exalted king, always longs to be invited into our hearts, to be invited into our homes. Would you do that afresh today, whether it's for the first time, the hundredth time, or at a deeper level than perhaps you've done? Let's look at this account here. Let's be amazed that the risen Christ chose relationship in the way that he did. And let's follow him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in this simple account, you came and ate with people, that you chose to, to meet two real everyday people. You broke bread, and in that simple encounter, 
they met you as the risen Christ. Lord, we pray too that in our everyday simple encounters with people, we will be able to share something of the gospel hope, the hope that you have risen, that you have conquered sin and death, and that you are Lord forevermore. And we ask it in your name. Amen.